We are continuing our sermon series this morning. Uh, we're going through each book of the Bible each Sunday. We have covered eight so far, eight of 66. Uh, but because those books tend to be longer, we're actually more than 20% of our way through the Bible. So for those of you who have been reading along, way to go, keep going. You know, you're a fifth of the way there. Good job. Um, this week and next week, we are looking at First and Second Samuel. These are great books, great stories. We know these stories. We love these stories. We actually went through a sermon series in 1 Samuel back in 2018. Uh, today, we're going to, co- of course, do the whole book of 1 Samuel in, in one sermon. And to help us kind of focus in on the main point of this book, uh, I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. And if you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is the story of Samuel anointing David. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is the very inspired Word of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now skip down to verse 6 with me. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for acting in history and recording these events for us. Help us to understand what you have done. Help us to understand better what it means for us so that we might live faithfully and humbly for you, our King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We said a couple of weeks ago that the main point of the book of Judges was to demonstrate Israel's unfaithfulness, a spiritual deterioration, and there was a need for a king. Last week we looked at the book of Ruth and we said this is the backstory. This is the story behind the main story of God's king. And this week we get to the story uh, of God's king David. But interestingly, David is not the king at the beginning of this book or the beginning of the story. Saul is the king. And David won't become the king until 2 Samuel. And the book of 1 Samuel is largely about the exaltation of David and the decline of Saul. And so it's this theme. God exalts the humble and He humbles the exalted. And, uh, and you will see that theme in Hannah's song in the, the second chapter. And it's a theme that runs throughout. So it's really, we're contrasting David and Saul. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to contrast David and Saul, talk about what God's king looks like and what that means for us. So here's the first contrast I want to highlight. 
Saul is chosen by the people versus David, who is chosen by God. The way that Saul becomes king reveals something's not right about this. And it reveals this isn't going to go very well. And uh, the the way it happens, the, the people come to Samuel and they demand that Samuel appoint a king for them so they can be like all the nations. So Samuel is sort of functioning as a judge or a leader at the time. And they say, we want a king and we want a king because we want to be like the rest of the nations. We want a king like everyone else. Chapter 8, verse 5. And Samuel is displeased by this, and he consults the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me by doing this. But but the Lord says, go ahead and do what they're demanding of you. And it raises a big question. You know, was it, were they wrong to want a king? Aren't there indications that we've seen so far that God had a plan for a king? And the answer is yes, God had a plan for his people to have a king from the very beginning all the way back in Genesis. You'll find evidence of this. So, so, so then what's wrong? Well, God wants his people to have a king who rules under his reign and ultimately makes him known as the king. But the people, their motivation, their reason for wanting a king is very different. They, they want a king so they can be like the rest of the nations. And uh, so they demand one and God says, fine, give them what they're asking for. Give them what they're demanding. And so he gives them a king, and this king, it tells us, is from Gibeah. Saul is from Gibeah. And if you remember, what's significant about Gibeah? That was the town in Judges 19 when the, when the train really went off the tracks and when we had Sodom part 2. And so I don't think it's a coincidence. Where does this king come from that the people choose? He comes from Gibeah. And, and Samuel emphasizes that the people are the ones who chose this king. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 13 says, Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And by the time you get to chapter 15, we see that God has rejected him as being the king, and the reason is because he has disobeyed God. So for example, chapter 15, verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now let's contrast Saul with David. David is not chosen by the people. David is chosen by God. Look, for example, at chapter 16, verse 3. This is God speaking to Samuel. He says, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Notice God says, the one that I tell you, the one that I declare to you, that's the one you're supposed to anoint. So go to Bethlehem. By the way, why is Bethlehem significant? That's where the events in Ruth took place, if you remember. And he says, I want you to go to Jesse. Jesse has multiple sons. Go to Jesse's house. I'm going to choose one of Jesse's sons. And he doesn't tell him which son. And I think that's a part of the drama. You know, he goes there, Samuel goes there to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house, unsure of which son he knows it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. You know, presumably it will be the eldest, the firstborn, the most mature, presumably the most qualified, probably just looks the part. And that's, that's actually Samuel's assumption. I'm guessing it's the firstborn, so let's bring Eliab out front. And the Lord says, no, not this one. Samuel says, okay. Well, then let's go with the second oldest son. Is it this one? No. Okay. The third one? No. Seven times this happens. You know, they have to kind of each time like look at each other. What's going on? And Samuel said, well, are, 
are there any sons that you've forgotten about? <laughs> Anybody else around here? You know? Well, I mean, there is David. You know, I'm assuming he's young. You know, I don't know, 12-year-old boy. There's David, but I mean, he's out in the field. Surely it's not David. Well, bring him in. You know, We've gone through everybody else. Bring him in. So they bring him in. Everybody's standing, waiting around. Comes in. And it says, the Lord says, verse 12, this is he. Anoint him. Samuel anoints him with oil. And it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. And then the very next verse, 14, tells us the Spirit departed from Saul. And another spirit was sent, and it tormented him for the rest of his life. David is anointed, but interestingly, he doesn't become the king quite yet. In fact, it's going to be quite a while before he becomes the king. Uh, it is, and it's going to be a big process, and it's going to be a lot of pain involved. And it's, it's going to require David to be wise and consult others. And it, actually, at times, he's going to hide. One of the places he hides is an area called En Gedi. It's a beautiful place. It's an oasis in the middle of the desert, kind of close to the Dead Sea. And several of us were able to go several years ago in these caves. And these are the caves where David would hide from Saul, and Saul's out to get him. And, and even in the midst of that exchange, at one point, Saul admits that he recognizes that David is the chosen one from God. Even Saul knows David is chosen by God. Listen to chapter 24, verse 20. He says, Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Even Saul knows David is chosen by God. Saul is an example of the kind of king the people choose. David is an example of the king that God chooses. And God highlights this contrast in a very dramatic way. I just picture this 12-year-old boy walking into this room filled with people. And I'm guessing he's dirty, you know, like 12-year-old boys are when they've been out and, you know, smell like outside, smell like animals. And he comes in, and you know how older brothers are. <laughs> you know, they're probably not going, hey, David, good to see you. You know, they're probably giving him a hard time, mocking him, laughing to each other. Yeah, I bet David's, I bet we're going to one day be bowing down to King David. Right. You know how brothers are. But even they're probably thinking, no way. And then all of a sudden, God says, this is the one. This is he. And Samuel anoints him. I wonder if Samuel whispered in his ear, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Wow. How does a 12-year-old boy think about that? Right? Wow. Why? Why this one? Why, why David? I think there's multiple answers. One answer is God loves to take people you'd never expect, the most unlikely, and call them and use them for his purposes because it highlights his glory. It demonstrates his glory when that kind of thing happens. You've heard of the term bandwagon fan. This is when a team is doing really well and all of a sudden they seem to have more fans than you, you realize they did. Like everybody cheers for them. Why? Because they're winning. It's fun to cheer for a winning team. I, I was kind of guilty of this, I think, when we moved here in 2015. We moved on around Labor Day. And that season, uh, the Denver Broncos happened to do so well, they went to the Super Bowl and won. And I think I actually wore Denver Bronco orange somewhere along the way there. You know? Like, yeah, we're winning. We're going to the Super Bowl. You know, it's we all of a sudden. Like, this is fun. Yeah. You know, and now it's like, well, not so much. Right? I'm not wearing Bronco orange. Right? They are actually three and five now after a win early this morning. Interestingly. Don't go checking your phones, though. Just trust me. Yeah. Uh, but we, we, we like to gravitate toward 
winning teams, winning programs. And here's the point. God doesn't do that. He doesn't jump on the bandwagon. He doesn't go, oh yeah, Eliab, the eldest son, let's go with him. Saul, yeah, everybody's in favor of Saul. That seems like the most efficient way to do it. Let's just go with Saul. He, he, he chooses the one you wouldn't expect. You know, if, if, if going back to the teams, I, he would choose like a peewee football team. And then everybody would be going, nope, they're not going to do it. And then they would. And then when they did, you'd say, how do you explain? How's that even possible? There's only one explanation. God did that. And that's, the, that's how he works. He works in such a way that you can only stand back and say, it must have been him. That's, that's how he wants it. He wants to get the glory. Right? Today ha- happens to be Reformation Sunday. It was 506 years ago, October 31st, when the Protestant Reformation was started, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And one of the great lessons, principles of the Protestant Reformation is that everything exists for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Everything is for God's glory. You are created for God's glory. And God does everything that He does for His glory. And this is one of the answers. Why David? He, he, he does it for His glory. He takes people you wouldn't expect. He takes people you, the, the least likely and He uses them for His purposes. He, he rarely picks people who are obvious. He rarely picks people based on outward appearance. These are the kind of things we tend to focus on. And that's a good, that's a good question for us to ask. What, what are you more focused on? In your life right now, what are the things that are getting your attention, your energy, your concern, your worry? What are the things that are getting you fired up? Is it things like outer appearance? Is it things that the world is getting money, success, pleasure? Are these the things that are driving you? Or is it being a man after God's own heart? Being a woman after God's own heart? Being concerned about what is God concerned about? That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's focused on. He's focused on you know, what, what brings him glory. And so who are we? We're supposed to be the people who are focused on the things of God, not focused on the things of the world, the bandwagon kind of things, the things that everybody's consumed by. We're supposed to be consumed with being people who live like people who are after God's own heart. David was chosen by God. Uh, The second contrast that I want to highlight is the arrogance of Saul versus the humility of David. You know, at the very beginning of the story, we actually see a couple little, a couple examples of humility with Saul, but it sure doesn't last very long. And as time goes on and the story goes on, the arrogance just seems to get worse and worse. For example, it starts in chapter 13. At least this is the first big act of arrogance where the Philistines are lining up to go to battle against Israel. And Samuel tells Saul, I want you to wait on me. When I get there, I will make the sacrifice. You're not qualified to do the sacrifice. I will do the sacrifice, and then you go to war. Well, Samuel doesn't show up, and Saul starts getting you know, concerned, and the Philistines are coming in. And so he says, you know what? I, I think I'll just do this, and that's a big no-no. And we've seen that. We've, we've, been, we've been in the story long enough to know God has a certain prescribed way of who does the sacrifice and who doesn't and how you do it. So he takes matters into his own hands, and then Samuel arrives and says, what in the world have you done? And he says, well, I, you know, I had to. You know, the, the Philistines were coming against us and the, my, my armies were scattering. And you, where were you? You know, I was trying to text you, see where you were. You weren't responding. Right? 
Where have you been? And, 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 he's, and Samuel says to him that you've disobeyed the clear commandment of God. Listen to chapter 13, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And you might think that he learned the lesson. Okay, I got it now. Wrong. <laughs> Two chapters later, they're going to war against the Amalekites, and, and he's given the instruction. He's given the command. I want you to go and defeat the Amalekites, and I want you to don't leave anything alive. Any people, any animals, nothing. Destroy it all. Okay. They go in, they defeat the Amalekites, but they leave a few things, a few people, the king, for example, and some animals alive. And Samuel shows up, and Saul, you know, in an act of arrogance, goes out to him and says, Hey, I did what you told me to do. I did exactly what you told me. And Samuel says, Really? What is this I hear? I hear the noise of animals. What is this? And he says, Well, you know, I mean, we left a few. We decided, we took it on ourselves. We decided to leave a few of the animals alive because we're going to sacrifice them to God. So it's, yes, we disobeyed, but it was a small little thing. And, we're going to, and we did it for spiritual reasons. Like, we're going to honor God with this. We're going to bless God with this. And Samuel says, no, you can't honor God with disobedience. No matter how much you justify it. The, the obedience is, is, is everything. And in fact, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. God would rather you obey the clear commands of God than sacrifice. And he says, rebellion is as the sin of divination. In other words, to disobey is satanic. Every time we disobey, it's satanic. And so we see the arrogance of Saul, and this is contrasted with the humility of David. David is marked by humility. Let me just give you several examples. The first one, after he's anointed to be the next king, uh, the spirit departs from Saul, and therefore Saul needs some music to soothe him. And guess who gets chosen to play the music for Saul? David. You know, you think God's in control here, working all this out? Of course. And so Saul's men go to find David to bring him in so he can play the music. Guess where they find David? Guess where he is? After having just been anointed as the next king of Israel, where does the future king of Israel go? What does he do? They find him with the sheep. Chapter 16, verse 19. He goes back to just doing the regular old mundane, ordinary, normal stuff. Future king of Israel, just doing the normal, ordinary, dirty work. And then he's tasked to take food to his brothers who were all fighting the war. You know, where this is where Goliath is. And, and look at what happens when David shows up to bring the food to his older brothers. Here he is, the youngest brother, the servant, bringing food to his older brothers. And look at how Eliab, the eldest brother, responds to him. Chapter 17, verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. I'm guessing Eliab is still a little bitter for getting passed over to be the next king. Right? And he lets it out on David. And he says, why aren't you back with those few sheep you're supposed to be tending? In other words, David's still a shepherd. He's still tending the sheep. And he's still getting mocked by his brothers. Right? He's still kind of the, 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 the young one, the runt. 
and, and he's still getting mocked by them, and, and, and he's, he's still serving them. We see his humility in this. We see his humility in the way he relates with Saul. Saul is the king, and Saul says, I'm going to allow David to marry my daughter. By the way, Saul's motivation is to ultimately kill him. And so he's not doing this as an act of grace or mercy or anything. He's, he's doing this to ultimately get David close to kill him. But look at how David, listen, listen to how David responds when he hears word that Saul is going to provide a wife for, from one of his daughters. Chapter 18, verse 23, Saul's servants spoke the words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? He says, who am I to marry the daughter of the king? Who am I? If I put myself in David's shoes, I would say, I'm the future king. In fact, let's go ahead and get Saul off the throne. You know, let's just get that going. I'm, I'm the king. And yes, I'll marry his daughter. I'll marry the king's daughter. You know? And, and by the way, I think Eliab is going to be the one who's going to start tending the sheep instead of me. Right? I'll let him get his own food and I'll let him work with the sheep. And I'm going to do kingly kind of things. I'm going to do the things a king would do. But he doesn't do that. We see his humility. And we see his humility at its greatest, I think, when he has two easy opportunities to take the life of Saul. Saul who's after him. Saul who's literally trying to kill David and has multiple times and has failed. And David has two clear opportunities to take him out and he doesn't. Because he says, that's in God's hands. God's the king. God's anointed, not my job to take justice into my hands. Though I'm the future king, not my job to take him out. So for example, 26 verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So humility is trusting God and being obedient to God, even when it seems like trusting and obeying are not going to benefit you. I'm going to say that again. Humility is trusting God and being obedient to God, even when trusting and obeying doesn't seem like it's going to benefit you or work for your good. We see this with David. We, we have an election coming up in a few days, in case you haven't heard anything about it or seen any of these plethora of ads on television. Uh, we have a box on our church property where you can drop off your ballot if you have a ballot, if you don't, you can, you can actually vote here. You can vote here all day on November 7 and November 8. And I strongly encourage you to vote. And I encourage you to vote for the right people and the right policies that, that are, uh, you know, reflect our, our values as Christians. And, and we have an incredible opportunity. We get to have an influence, or at least try, to have an influence on our city, our county, our state, and ultimately our country. So by all means, we ought to take advantage of that. Let me just give you one example of how I think you should vote for a particular item on the ballot. I think you should vote against legalizing psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> I think that's an obvious, easy no-brainer. And I can't believe we're even talking about it. I can't believe we're voting on it. It's a, that's a reflection of where we are, that we're voting on the legalization of psychedelic mushrooms. Right? I, 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 for me, I, I, tend, I just always vote against you know, anything that's going to promote drugs, alcohol, gambling, I just vote against it. And my mindset is, you know, is this going to benefit society? Is it going to preserve society? You know, if this person gets in office or if this policy is passed, is this going to be good for my grandchildren's generation? You know, is this going to help benefit, preserve, build up society? And if not, 
then by all means, you know, vote against it. Uh, but biblical humility recognizes our person might not win. And the policies that we believe are right may not get passed. And in fact, the wrong policies might get passed. And living in the state of Colorado, that's, that's a pattern we see pretty frequently. Uh, and it can be frustrating. Let's be honest. It can be very frustrating. But biblical humility says, you know what? We know who's on the throne. God's on the throne. So therefore, we you know, don't take justice into our own hands. We, we, we are still law-abiding good citizens. We want to obey the law, follow the law, pray for our leaders, because we believe God's on the throne. So we still act like God's on the throne. Right? And, that, and, that, and that's, this, is, this is what David does. David trusts that God's on the throne even when Saul is out to kill him. Think about that. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He doesn't kill, he doesn't kill him. He doesn't take justice into his hands by killing him. He also is not passive. He doesn't sit back and say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. He's in control, so I do nothing. He strategizes. He plans. He's wise. He even hides at times. But he trusted. Here's the point. David trusted that God was on the throne even when Saul was on the throne. And I think that's biblical humility. Biblical humility is trusting that God is on the throne even when Saul is on the throne. And this brings us to the third contrast. Saul, who is fearful of man, versus David, who is faithful to God. So in verse 13, when Saul offers the sacrifice, he should have waited. Samuel comes to him. One of the excuses he gives is, I was afraid. I was afraid of the Philistines. So I had to do it. I had to make the sacrifice because of a fear, a fear of man, a fear of the Philistines. Chapter 15, when he fails to devote everything to destruction, when he's confronted, he says the reason why he did it is because he was afraid of his people. Why would he be afraid of the people? Here's how I'm picturing it. I'm picturing all of the people said, hey, let's not kill everything. Let's save some of it. Wouldn't that make sense? And they, the bandwagon mentality, the mob mentality said, yeah, let's save the king and we can humiliate him. And let's save some of the animals. I mean, we can use this stuff. This is good stuff. And it says that Sam, uh, Saul was afraid of the people. He was afraid to go against the, the mob, the wish of the mob. He was afraid of people. He's fearful. And we see him deeply fearful of David. He's afraid of David, and it's combined with a jealousy of David, and it's really nasty, and it leads to largely his downfall. And it all begins when the people are chanting, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul just can't handle that. He can't handle somebody else getting more praise than him. And from that day forward, you see his jealousy, you see a fear Listen, for example, to chapter 18, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 15, when Saul saw that David had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Saul knows that David is the chosen one. He admits it himself. He's jealous, he's afraid, and it drives him crazy. It literally drives him mad. And by the end of the story, he's consulting a medium a medium, someone he's actually put out of the country, he's consulting a medium to try to conjure up the spirit of Samuel to get advice from Samuel, which, by the way, Samuel's been telling him from day one, you're not the man. 
And all of a sudden you think Samuel's going to change his tune because he came back from the dead. It's like, this, this is ridiculous. This is totally irrational. And that's a good biblical principle for us to point out. Sin is always irrational. Sin never makes sense. Sin is irrational, and the more you go down the path of sin, the more it, you will become irrational. That's good to know. If you follow the wickedness of your heart, and you follow a path of sin and disobedience, you will become an irrational person. You will do things that don't even make common sense. You will be irrational. It's foolish. It doesn't make sense. It's not for your good. It doesn't benefit you. And you'll just keep going and keep going. It's good to know that about your own heart. Your own heart will lead you down that path if left unchecked by God. And it's good to know that about others. Other people who are pursuing a, a life of disobedience persistently are people who are going to be irrational. So know that. Be rare of that. Be ready for that. Sin is always irrational. Uh, Saul is contrasted with David here. David is not driven by fear of man. David is driven by a healthy fear of God and, and, and a desire to be faithful to God. And we see the example of this. The greatest example of this is the great story of David and Goliath. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. In verses 10 and 11, we see Goliath the Philistine who's taunting Israel, taunting the people, taunting Israel's God. The Philistine said, verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. How does Saul respond to Goliath? Greatly afraid. He's afraid of a man. How does David respond to this same man, this same giant? How does David the boy, the smelly boy out with the sheep, how does David respond to this threat, to this taunt? It's too good not to read it. i got to read it. Chapter 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. David is not afraid of anyone. He's not afraid of anything. Why? Because he has faith in God. And we have this natural instinct. We want to take this story and we want to apply it to ourselves, and we want to say, we're David, and we have all these Goliaths, and we just need to have faith like David and slay the Goliaths. And there's certainly a principle here that we can learn from and apply, but, but, but there's something here that's much bigger than that, and there's something here that's much better than that that we just can't miss. The story of David and Goliath is the demonstration that David is God's anointed king. It's, it's no coincidence where the story falls. It falls, for example, after chapter 15, where Saul is rejected. That's key. Saul is rejected as the king. Chapter 16, what happens? David is the anointed king. He's anointed by God. Though he's young, though no one considered him to be the king, God anoints him. God chooses him. Now, what happens in chapter 17? We have the proof. We have the demonstration 
that he is God's king. How come? He's the one who can defeat the Goliath, the the giant that no one else can. So what's the application? The application is he's God's king. He's God's chosen anointed king. You make sure you're aligned with him. You want to be on his side. You want to be on his team. He wins in the end. You want to win in the end? Align, bow the knee, submit to God's king. And of course, this story of this king, David, is ultimately pointing forward to another Davidic king, one of David's sons, King Jesus. And just like David, Jesus is anointed with God's spirit. He's the anointed king. In fact, that's what the word Messiah means. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. And it means very simply, the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed king, like David is the anointed king. And just like David has the Spirit come upon him, so Jesus has the Spirit of God come upon him at his baptism, signifying, this is my son, this is my king, this is the one. And just like David's life is marked by humility and faithfulness, Jesus' life is marked by incredible humility and incredible faithfulness. In fact, the Bible says he humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He was humble to such an extent he died on a Roman cross. And just as, as David is proven to be the king and demonstrated to be the king through his defeat of Goliath, so Jesus is proven and demonstrated to be the king through his defeat of death. Death is the giant that Jesus slays. He conquers death and so proves to be God's anointed king. Unlike David, Jesus reigns on the throne forever. He reigns on the the Davidic throne forever and his kingdom has no end. But the proof that he's the king is that he rose from the grave. And if you want even more proof, look at some of the things he said and did prior to his death, telling us he was going to die, specifically how, and telling us he was going to rise again on the third day. It's even more proof. And one of those examples actually is the Lord's Supper. David gives his disciples this meal on the night when he's going to die, and he's doing it. One of the reasons is to demonstrate he knows. I'm going to die. My body's going to be broken. My blood's going to be poured out. Therefore, we're going to take this meal, which is pointing forward to an event that hasn't yet happened. I want you to take this meal, and the bread represents my body, which is about to be crushed. And the cup represents my blood, which is about to be poured out. And then I'm going to come back from the grave. And I want you guys to keep taking the meal regularly until I return as the king, and then the meal will be fulfilled and we will celebrate this meal in the kingdom of God. And in the meantime, I want you to live like I'm the king. I want you to align with God's king. Bow the knee to God's king. Live humble lives, faithful lives, trusting that I'm the king. And so this morning, we are actually going to take that meal. It's a tradition that goes all the way back to Jesus and the apostles. It's been handed down to us. And when we take the meal... What are we doing? First of all, we're saying we believe that this cup and we believe this bread represents the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, which was broken and poured out for us, and we need it. And we are saying that we believe that Jesus rose again, and today He's alive and reigning as the King. And by taking this meal, we're saying we believe this. And by taking this meal, listen to this. This is so important. Please don't miss this. By taking this meal, we are saying... We are committed to align ourselves with Jesus the King, like right now. We are aligning with Him. Therefore, we will live faithfully. We will live humbly before Jesus our King. 
until he returns. And so for these reasons, because we're saying something by taking this meal, therefore it's meaningful, therefore we ask that only believers who are believers in Jesus Christ who are in good standing with the New Testament church take the meal with us. So if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not in good standing with the New Testament church, we would ask you to pass and, and not take this meal. If you are trusting in Christ, if you're in good standing with the New Testament church, we welcome you to take it with us. Uh, but I want to give you a few moments to make sure we don't take it flippantly, to make sure that we examine, we confess, we repent, we prepare, and we take this meal in a manner that's worthy. There are elements at the back of the room, so all you have to do is get one cup. It's a single cup, but it has two elements in it. So if you, if you haven't yet gotten one, you can go back and get one during this time. And I'm going to ask everyone else if they'll bow their head, close their eyes, and prepare. And then I will pray and lead us from there here in a few moments.